Welcome to Passion Life Church. You are in for a treat here at Passion Life Church, and uh, you're just going to be so blessed. This morning we have a guest speaker with us, um, and his name is uh, Lewis Connell. And uh, Lewis Connell travels throughout the world. Um, he was a pastor for about 10 years and now is traveling as an evangelist, is speaking in some of the greatest churches in America, Hillsong, South Africa, Johannesburg, South Africa, the great Rama church there. And uh, he's now based in San Diego, California. And uh, God has just been using his ministry and healing, has a passion to see people saved, but also has seen specifically people healed of depression, of anxiety, of mental illness. And so would you just before, I know we're going to be seated for a moment, but would you just stand one last time? Come on, let's give our guest, Lewis Connell, a great round of applause as he comes to minister to us this morning. Thanks for being here, brother. Excellent. Can we give Jesus one more shout of praise? Can we do that? Excellent. So good. Why don't you grab your seats? Thanks, guys. Thanks so much. Are you doing well? You good? Happy to be in church? This is passionate church, so you have to be a little bit passionate. It's uh, great to be here. You probably worked out I'm not from here. Anybody got that already? G'day, mate. Crikey. Anyway, uh, I am from Australia, uh, but been living in America for about the last 14 months. So I lived in Australia the first 40 years of my life. Uh, had been traveling as an evangelist full-time, have been doing that for about six or seven years. We've been living by faith. Uh, but God spoke to my family. I've got two little boys and a wife and told us to move to America. And uh, we've been here, like I said, about 14 months. Uh, I, I can't help but I'll always be an Aussie at heart. You know, 40 years in Australia, it'll do that to you. Uh, but I've got a, a confession I'm actually now legitimately 5% American, 5%. The reason I'm 5% is because when I first arrived, I was about 220 pounds, and now I'm about 235. So this part here was born in the United States of America. Uh, please don't be offended. I'm trying to kill it in Jesus' name, uh, but it's hard. Bacon. Anyway, seriously, right? In Australia, we were, I was sold a lie. Because we have bacon, but it's like Canadian bacon, which is really like ham. Do you know what I'm saying? And I was told for 40 years that I was eating bacon, but really I was only eating ham. And I had to come all the way to America to realize what bacon really is, okay? Anyway, um, if you're Canadian, I hope I haven't offended you too much. But uh, it's great to be here, and uh, I really feel like I've got a word for today. And uh, let me just share a bit of my story. I, I grew up in Melbourne, uh, Australia. And uh, my parents divorced when I was about five or six, and uh, my dad, uh, he did a whole heap of drugs. And we'd go stay with my dad every Friday night, and he'd have a lot of his friends over that'd be all partying and doing drugs and selling drugs. And, and so we'd stay with my dad every Friday night, and, and my, my younger sister and I, and we lived with my mum six nights a week, but my mum also did drugs. Uh, many of my aunties and uncles did drugs. Even some of my grandparents did drugs. You know you're in trouble when granddad smokes bongs, okay? That's a <laughs> so, so I was surrounded by addiction, and uh, at about 12 or 13, I started to smoke cigarettes, uh, binge drinking, marijuana. Uh, at 15, I started to inject speed uh, using acid, ecstasy. At 16, I took an acid trip at a house where they were involved in satanic worship, and I actually overdosed for about three hours, had a very demonic encounter. 
uh, that left me with what psychologists would have diagnosed as drug-induced psychosis, where the television would speak to me, the radio would speak to me, I was suicidal. Uh, I'm going to share that, that story in the last 10 minutes of my message. It's a pretty freaky, out there uh, kind of story. Uh, but long story short, from 13 to 23, uh, I use drugs almost every day of my life. Uh, I've got a photo of what I look like. Uh, let's put that up on the screen as a drug addict. There I am. You can't see it properly, but I'm making a cake. Uh, I can't tell you what's in the cake. No, that's just for the naughty people. Again. Anyway, uh, but there I am. I was pretty messed up. And you can take that down because it's embarrassing. Uh, but had an auntie, <coughs> excuse me, that prayed for me for 17 years that I would one day encounter the love of Jesus Christ. And uh, on my 23rd birthday, every year she would send me a birthday card and it would always have a Bible verse in it, Jeremiah 29, 11, talking about that, you know, I know the plans I have for you, give you a hope and a future to bless you, not to harm you. And, and down the bottom it would say, Jesus loves you. And, <coughs> and if I'd be really honest with you, I'm 23, I'm still partying, doing drugs. And I remember reading the card thinking, yep, She's a Christian crackpot, you know, sort of just threw the card to the side. And about two weeks after that birthday, my mum rings me. I'd moved cities and she says, hey, you never even rang your auntie to say thank you for the card. And so I was dressed in nightclub clothes and organized to get drugs. I just turned 23 at this nightclub. And, <coughs> excuse me. And so just to get my mum off my back, I think I'll quickly ring my auntie. It'll just take 30 seconds. Thank you for the card. I'll move on with my life. Keep doing drugs. And so I pick up the phone to this lady that's been praying for 17 years. And as I pick up the phone, I hear her voice and she says, hello, hello. And as soon as I heard her voice, it was literally like heaven opened up. And the love of the Father tangibly came from the top of my head to the bottom of my feet. And in that moment, I was so overwhelmed with this love that I'd never felt before that, that immediately I broke and began to weep on the phone. And, and in that moment, for the very first time, my auntie, she led me in a prayer where for the first time I invited Jesus Christ to come and live inside of my heart. Uh, I went to church the next day for the first time in my life, 23 years old. I, I walked in and I publicly made a decision for Jesus Christ that night. And, and I was fully born again. My spirit was alive to God. I was so full of joy. I'd met God in a powerful way, but still had this 10-year addiction that had been ruling in my life for so long. And you know, who knows that you can love Jesus and be born again, but still have stuff going on in your life. It's called being a human being. And it's why we need a savior. His name is Jesus Christ. And he's perfect. I'm not. And so uh, I was fully born again, but still struggled with this addiction. And I'd only been in church for about two weeks. And uh, I heard the pastor say that there was nothing that God couldn't do. And so as a two-week-old Christian, I remember it, I was in my lounge room and I got on my hands and knees and Still addicted to drugs, but I met God in a powerful way. I said, God, the pastor said there's nothing that you can't do. God, I want you to take this addiction away from me. And all of a sudden, faith began to rise. In a two-week-old Christian, faith began to rise because a lady had been praying for 17 years. And, and as faith began to rise, I remember I hit the ground and, and on my hands and knees. And I said, God, when will you do it? When will you take this thing away from me? And as clear as anything, as a brand new Christian, I hear this voice that says 726. And I stood up a little bit startled thinking, what, what does that mean, 726? And, and as I was thinking, what does it mean? I hadn't looked at my clock in at least a couple hours and I saw my kitchen clock from my lounge room and it was exactly 726. 
And it was at that moment that I knew that I knew that I knew that I would never need drugs again, never need cigarettes again, never had a desire, never had a withdrawal, completely gone. You know, the thing that I love is that what took the devil 23 years of his downward, demonic, destructive cycle just took my God one word. One word to say it's done, it's finished, it's broken. And you know what? Maybe you've got stuff going on in your world that no one knows about. Can I tell you, one word from heaven can change any situation. We heard an incredible testimony today. One word from heaven literally can change everything. And uh, in that moment, God spoke to me about a few things that were all going to happen in my life. And all of them came to pass. I don't have time to share them all now, but one of them is really cool. The night before, I was in a little Bible study, just been in church two weeks, and we're doing a new Christians class, and as we're doing the class, all of these young adults are turning up to the church in fancy dress costumes. And I said to one of the guys, I said, man, what's going on? And he said, well, it's one of the girls, she's just having a, a party, it's fancy dress, and she's just using the building of the church, you know, to have her party in. And then as he's speaking, the girl that was having the party, she came into the room where we were doing the study just to get something out of the cupboard for her, her birthday. And, and she walks in and she was dressed as Barbie, you know, Barbie doll. She had like Barbie hair, Barbie skirt, Barbie bat, the whole Barbie thing going on. She walked in. I started drooling a little bit. Uh, I said, how you doing? Uh, she ignored me because I look like the cake guy. And uh, that was the end of my Barbie. Uh, but that was her there on her 23rd birthday. And uh, she, uh, so, 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 you know, she sort of went off and had her party, and uh, I finished my Bible study. If you didn't know me at all, I was brand new to church. I did. I looked like the guy that was making the cake. And, and then the next night, I have this crazy God encounter. God says, 726, fully sets me free. And then he speaks to me, and he says, Lucas, the girl you saw last night, she's the girl you're going to marry. I said, God, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it for you. <laughs> God, send me. I will go. And uh, so the next day I got up and I changed my name to Ken. And no, I didn't really. <laughs> it took her a year and a half to come to her senses and see what she was missing out on. And no, no, no. It took me a year and a half to be even close to being ready for a godly functional relationship. But we've now been married. Next week we've been married 16 years. And uh, God's been so good. And, and let me quickly show you what happens when you marry Barbie. Next slide. There we go. Josiah and Caleb. And God's just been so good to me and, and, and I'm so thankful. And, uh, you know, I've got a little bit of resource just really quickly. Uh, I've got this here. You're going to hear my, the last 10 minutes of the crazy part of my story. But this, this here is called To Hell and Back. It's a CD. Uh, it's an audio CD. The reason I, I put this together is because every time I preach, I get mums, dads, aunties, uncles, grandparents that come to me saying, I wish so-and-so could have been here to hear your story this morning. So this is actually a resource that you buy for somebody else. You can listen to it yourself, but if you know someone that, that relate to my story of mental illness, addiction, you know, all that kind of stuff, this is a tool that you can put in their hand. And I've seen so many people find salvation listening to this in their car, in their home. And, and then there's a, uh, these are $10, and then there's a, a download card here that has about 14 messages. A lot of the messages do really speak speak to anxiety, depression, but a lot around faith and walking on water and a whole heap of things. So if, if you get one of these, uh, you actually can get a free CD, comes with that as well. So either way, uh, I want to talk from 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. I think the guys have got it on the screen. Uh, but let me just uh, give you the pre-story what's happening here. Uh, Saul was the first king of Israel. 
And uh, Saul really followed his sinful nature. He didn't really follow God. He, he ends up consulting uh, witches, mediums, in a sense. And eventually the way Saul's life ends is he's surrounded by the enemy. And rather than let him, them kill him, he deliberately falls on his sword. On the same day, Saul's son Jonathan is also killed in battle. So Saul is dead. Jonathan is dead. Jonathan was best friends with David. They loved each other deeply. And now eventually David becomes the second king of Israel. And one of the first things David does because of his love for Jonathan is found here in verse 1 of chapter 9. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And then it goes on. Let me just tell you, rather than read the whole chapter, let me tell you what happens. There's a servant named Ziba, and he says, Well, actually, Jonathan has a son called Bathibasheth. He is crippled in both of his feet, and he lives in a place called Lodabar. This young crippled boy is brought before the king, and he's petrified. He thinks he's in trouble because he's related to Saul, the first king. But as he approaches, King David says, hey, don't fear. He says, I'm going to give you back the land your grandfather lost. I'm going to give you servants to work the land. And then the coolest part, he says, and from now on, you will sit at my table as if you were one of the king's sons. The thing I love about this story is the plan of God for you and I, the plan of God for the church is actually hidden in this particular text. And that would be sort of cool if this was a parable that God made up and then said, hey, surprise, there's a hidden story in the story that I made up. But this is not a parable. This is three generations of history that naturally unfolded and God says, surprise, my, my plan for humanity is woven into the very fabric of history. I'm going to need some volunteers uh, to, to, to come and help me. So I'm going to get Bobby, if you could come. And then I'll just get, if you two guys could come really quickly as well. And then I need someone that could be a granddad. But I don't know. I'm... There we go. All right, I'm just going to get you, sir, if you could really come. I know you're not a granddad, but you're going to have to work with me. Bobby, if you could stand over that side by yourself. And if, gentlemen, you guys could come over this way. And if you come around that way, that'd be great. Excellent. All right, good. So if you guys just stand right there, right where you are, and then we'll wait for this guy to come here. So, so this, this young man is going to be Grandfather Saul, okay? And, uh, and then we've got, he, actually, we're going to make you the granddad. I'm sorry. Okay, please don't hate me. I saw a little bit of gray, and I so it's just not going to be right. All right, we have our new granddad, Saul, and not prophetic. Uh, so we have Saul, then we have his son, Jonathan, and then his son, Mephibosheth. Okay, so three generations. And over here, I chose Bobby deliberately to be David because the Bible says David was handsome and ruddy. And I've got to be honest because we're in church, okay? Uh, Bobby has heard this message on podcasts and he asked me before the service if he could be David in the story. So there you go, Bobby. That's why he's been working out so much. Anyway, no. All right, three generations, okay? We have the first generation is Saul. If you know a little bit of Bible, if you don't, that's totally cool. People could often think that Saul did such a bad job that he wasn't chosen by, king, by God. But actually, God chose Saul. God wanted Saul to be a great king. God wanted him to rule, reign, have authority and dominion. But Saul gave into his own sinful nature and lost everything God wanted him to have. The first of this generation is actually a picture of the very first man in Adam, who God also chose. God wanted Adam to rule, reign, have authority and dominion. But Adam also gave in to his sinful nature and lost everything that God wanted him to have. 
The first of this generation is actually a picture of the first man, the first Adam. The second in this story of this generation, uh, Jonathan, is a picture of the second Adam, or the Bible calls him the last Adam in Jesus Christ. See, everybody in, this, in that day knew that it was Jonathan's birthright to inherit the kingdom. He was Saul's son. But if you go back a few chapters, Jonathan has this moment with David, who in this story, David represents God the Father. And Jonathan comes before David and he actually lays down his robe, his belt, and, and, and his sword. And what he's actually saying to David is, although the kingdom is mine to claim, I recognize what the Spirit of God is doing and I lay down what is mine for the good of God the Father and for the good of everybody else. See, Jonathan is a picture of Jesus Christ who could have come 2,000 years ago to take back what was his. But rather than take it back, he came to lay down his very life for the good of God the Father and for the good of you and I. Three generations, we have the first Adam, we have the last Adam. And then Mephibosheth represents everybody to come after Jesus Christ. It says that he was crippled in both of his feet. In other words, he couldn't get to where he needed to be. You know, it wasn't his fault that he was crippled. That when he was five years old, because of his grandfather's sin, he was dropped. And now he is crippled because of his grandfather, symbolic of the generation that live in this city, that are crippled by sin, and it's not even their fault, but it goes back to the very first man in Adam, and now every human being is born with this crippling disease called sin. He lives in a place called Lodabar, which actually means place of desolation. Again, a generation that is crippled by sin, trapped and living in desolation. But then the greatest part of the story, we read the verse, where David, who represents God the Father, he stands and he says, Who can I bless from the house of Saul for the sake of Jonathan? But what he's really saying is, who that's crippled by sin? Who that is trapped in desolation? Who could I give an inheritance to? Who could I invite to sit at my table as sons or daughters of the Most High God for the sake of my son, Jesus Christ, who died on a cross for humanity? Can we give these guys a big round of applause? Thank you so much. See, my mind races a bit, though, because if it's the full plan of God, we had God the Father, we had God the Son, Where's the Holy Spirit? And also my mind races a little bit because the king, he lived in the rich part of town and Mephibosheth, he lived in the poor part of town. So there's a great geographical distance between the two. How did a young crippled boy get all the way to the king's palace? And I don't think it's a far stretch to think that we know in the story the king wanted him to appear. So it's not a far stretch to think that one of the servants would have brought the young boy to the king's palace. The servant in this particular story, Zeba, who actually knew all about this young boy and his family, if you trace his name back in the Hebrew, you end up with the words, you come to the words army or Lord's army. See, it's the Lord's army that leaves the palace to go to the place of desolation to find people that are crippled by sin and carry them to their destiny and their inheritance in the kingdom of God. You say, where's the Holy Spirit? Well, Acts 1.8 says the role of the Holy Spirit is so that we would all have dunamis, dynamic power to be witnesses all over the earth. Where was the Holy Spirit in this story? He was on the Lord's army, anointing and empowering the Lord's army to carry someone to their destiny. See, I'm so thankful that I had an auntie that wasn't just into doing fellowship every weekend, although it's incredibly important. 
I'm so thankful I had an auntie who wasn't just into listening to the Word of God every weekend, although it's incredibly important. But I'm thankful I had an auntie that knew that she was part of the Lord's army, that she was empowered by the Holy Spirit. And even if it took 17 years, she was going to carry this crippled, broken boy until I found my place sitting at the king's table, partaking of my destiny and my inheritance. See, I want to give you three quick things that my auntie did practically to bring me to the kingdom. There are also sort of three things that Jesus does to bring us to the kingdom. I'll explain this sort of at the end. The first thing my auntie did is she simply, number one, she came down to where I was at. See, someone has to leave the comfort of the palace to go down to the place of desolation. You know, when I was at my worst, probably between about 15 and 18 or 19, I was injecting speed a real lot and There were times when I would stay awake, be awake for three days without any sleep. When I was at my worst, there were times of three days of no sleep that I'd licked my lips compulsively so much that my lips became giant scabs. I would scratch myself with paranoia and end up with scabs and marks all over my face and arms. Three days of no sleep, I'd be white and pasty. You look like death warmed up. You're a scatterbrain. You hardly make any sense at all. But you know what? When I was at my worst, I never remember a time where my auntie came to visit me and I felt worse because of her visit. Because she never rode in on her Christian high horse telling me how I was a sinner, telling me how bad I was. I just needed to look in the mirror to know how bad life was. But every time she came, she came down to where I was at. She spoke a language that I could understand. She came down to where I was at so that she could help take me to where I needed to be. See, the great apostle Paul said, I became all things to all men that I might win some. You know, when we start to judge where everybody else is at, it says more about us than it does about them. It says that I've simply forgotten that I once had the same disease that was going to keep me separated for all of an eternity. But somebody came down to where I was at so that I could get to where I needed to be. You know, I said my auntie did these things and so does Jesus. Aren't you so glad that we serve a God that came down to where we're at? Aren't you glad we don't serve a God that stayed up in heaven and said, hey, listen, when you get your life up to my standard, then we can start to do relationship. But we serve a God that said, no, let me come down to your sin. Let me come down to your brokenness. Let me come down to your humanity. Let me come down to where you're at so that I can help take you to where you need to be. The second thing my auntie did is she simply embarrassed us with generosity. Matthew 5.16, it says here, In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. It's actually not rocket science. Just let people keep seeing your good deeds and eventually they'll give praise to God in heaven. See, my auntie, she's still never been married to this day. She's probably close to 60 years old. She's my mum's younger sister. Uh, she's always had a very humble income. But I can't remember a time when I was a young person that she'd turn up to our house empty-handed. There was always, at the very minimum, a card that had beautiful words about our family. There was normally chocolates or some kind of lolly for us kids. And, and, and you know, I, I was from a very non-religious family. I had every single children's Bible story that you could possibly imagine. Whenever we'd move houses, there was no money to get in the cleaners to clean the house. And 
There was no money to get the moving guys to do the moving for us. It was do it yourself. And of my mum's six brothers and sisters, this particular auntie was always the first one to arrive and the last one to leave. Because she just made a decision that she would embarrass us with generosity until we eventually gave praise to God in heaven. You know, I preached this same message a couple years ago at a church in Perth. And there was a doctor that was in the crowd. And at his clinic, he had many young drug addicts that would continue to come to his clinic. And he felt so helpless. He knew Jesus was the answer, but he just didn't know how to get to them. And he listened to this exact same message. And that particular night, we were doing like an evangelistic sort of night where I would share my story. And straight after the Sunday morning message, after this message, he drove to his local supermarket. He filled his entire trunk and back seat with groceries. He knew where one of these young drug addicts lived. Uninvited, he turned up at his house. He knocks on the door and he says, hey, I don't want to freak you out, but I just wanted to bless you with a whole heap of groceries. And imagine the young man's shock as he watched his doctor carry bag after bag and fill his freezer, his fridge, and his pantry. Once all the groceries were put away, he turned to him and he says, you need to understand, this is completely unconditional. There's nothing you need to do because of what I've just done. He said, but I did want to ask you tonight. We've got this guy coming to our church and he's got a bit of a crazy story. And I was just wondering if you'd like to be my guest tonight. Guess who the first young man standing at the altar that night where I watched tears stream down his face, where he gave his life to Jesus Christ for the very first time because someone embarrassed him with generosity and he ended up giving praise to God in heaven. You know, you might say, well, I don't have a lot of money. You can be generous with your words. You can be generous with your hands and you can be generous with your wallet. You don't have to do it to everyone, but have a few people that you're like, you know what, you're on my list and I'm going to embarrass you with generosity until you end up giving praise to God in heaven. I said my auntie did these things and so does Jesus. Romans 5.8. It says that while we were still sinners, I think we've done the wrong scripture, but that's okay. While we were still sinners, Romans 5.8 says that Christ died for us. What an amazing thing. It doesn't say... That, that once I got my life together, then Christ said, let me go to the cross for Lucas Connor. Well, once I sorted everything out, once I started preaching at churches, then he died. No, it says, while I was still a sinner. In other words, while I was at my worst, Christ said, let me give you the gift that of eternal life that you don't deserve, that you have not earned, the gift that you'll still be unwrapping in a million years' time called eternal life. What an amazing thing. He embarrassed us with generosity. Last point, just if the uh, musos wants to, want, to, want to come, uh, or at least just Bobby. Um, you know, the, the thing that I'm most thankful for, that my auntie did, I mean, yes, she came down to where I was at. Yes, she embarrassed us with generosity. But the thing that I'm most thankful for is that she simply prayed. For, for 17 years, she prayed. You know, I've got a lot of cousins. Both my mum and dad come from families of seven siblings. And of all the cousins, I was one of the worst. I was getting all my other cousins, the younger ones, on drugs, on cigarettes, on alcohol at a very early age. And my aunties told me the prayer that she prayed for 17 years. See, I'm a Pentecostal. I love the Holy Spirit. She's a Baptist lady. And, you know, when she prayed, she never prayed in another language. There was never a keyboard in the background when she prayed. She'd just be on her hands and knees each night. And she prayed the same prayer for 17 years. It went like this. She's told me. She said, God, I see what the devil's doing in his life. 
But I pray that you would make him a giant killer. For 17 years, she prayed that prayer. She didn't pray that I'd just end up in a church. She didn't pray that I'd one day meet Jesus. She prayed that I'd become a giant killer. From the moment I became born again 18 years ago, I found myself in ministry right from the start. Being a youth pastor, an adult pastor, a Bible college principal, a pastor of a great church. Six, seven years ago, God said, step away from your income and just live by faith. We've been doing it for six, seven years. I've literally had doors open all over the world where I've been to so many different countries. I've seen thousands, probably tens of thousands of people give their lives to Jesus Christ. I've seen hundreds, if not thousands of people get set free of things, of every kind of addiction, of anxiety, of depression, of mental illness, of people that have been sexually abused, just receive beautiful healing. And I say this not to make myself sound good, but just to show you all I'm doing is riding the wave of 17 years of prayer. I'll finish with this story just in our last 10 minutes. The reason I'm so thankful she prayed is because of what happened to me when I was 16 years old. I've got to warn you, this is a freaky story. It's an out there story. There's no other way I can explain it. It's just the way that I perceived it to happen. But I was 16 years old and I was with this girl and we were buying a drug called acid. And if you don't know, acid is a hallucinogenic that a mind altering drug causes you to see things that aren't really there. And we went to this house to buy the drug and the guys selling us the drug, they were involved in satanic worship. It was back in the early 90s and we walked into the house and there were posters of demons like bands like Slayer and different satanic symbols and all that kind of thing. And so when we got to the house, these guys said, well, why don't you just take the, the drug here with us tonight? And me and this girl were just 15 or 16. We both agreed. I took this full acid trip. And after about half an hour, I end up completely unconscious on the bedroom floor. And although physically I'm unconscious, in my mind's eye, I'm very awake. I wasn't religious, but all of a sudden a darkness, a pure evil came over my entire being. An evil that I could never even imagine existed. And then in my mind's eye, so clearly this being stood before me and he literally dripped with evil. And he spoke to me, he said, Lucas, you're dead. No one likes you, no one loves you, no one wants your soul. Who do you want to give your soul to? And then like a lawyer, he painted this picture of every wrong thing that I ever done my whole life. Painted this picture that why would anyone want my sinful soul? And in that moment, the most tormenting thing is I knew I was guilty. But the reality is we're all guilty without the blood of Jesus Christ because we all have a sinful nature. That when a microscope is put on it, we all find that we're guilty. And he kept painting this picture that no one would want my soul and it kept coming back to this decision of who do you want to give your soul to like he was the only option. And I didn't know what to do, but something new not to let go. I kept fighting and eventually I went to this other stage where now I was just in total darkness, but I was tormented like I could never properly articulate ridiculed, mocked, teased, laughed at. Like I was the butt of every joke of the entire world that everybody was laughing at me. Pure evil. Eventually I went to this last part of the trip where now I saw my body and I was thrown into this disgusting pit, like a piece of flesh that was discarded that nobody wanted. 
And as I was discarded in this pit, I, I saw these ferocious, disgusting demon creatures. And they were coming down in the bottom of this pit and they were literally ripping my soul apart. I remember screaming, thinking, this can't be the end of my life. I'm just 16 years old. And as I was just about no more, all of a sudden I woke up on that bedroom floor. I got out of that house as quick as you can imagine. I'll never forget, I remember getting home to where I lived at my mum's house. I walked through my bedroom door and I leant against my bunk beds. And as I leant there, I thought to myself, that actually felt like the realest thing that I've ever encountered in my whole life. I thought it couldn't be real. It's just what they call a bad trip. About two weeks later, I was out with some friends. We were parked in a car. I was in the back seat on the driver's side. We were parked out at the front of this bar that we were about to go and meet a few people. It was called the Cantina Bar. And I'm sitting in the back seat, minding my own business. And completely out of the blue, my friend in the middle back seat, he turns to me and he says, hey, I heard you met the devil the other week. And as soon as he said those words, the only way I can explain it is I actually tangibly felt the same evil physically come over my whole being. As he said those words and I felt tangibly this evil, I was actually paralyzed for a moment in fear. He's just asked about the devil, I'm paralyzed in fear. But then he looks at me, but it was like he looked into me. And he said, guess who's gonna be at the cantina bar tonight? And it was literally like that evil spoke through him straight to me saying, I'm still here. For the next three years of my life, I would have been diagnosed with drug-induced psychosis, where I would think things and the television would answer my thoughts, the radio would answer my thoughts. I would have conversation with this evil voice every single day of my life. It would tell me that no one likes me, no one loves me, that I should kill myself. The thing that makes it more crazy than it already is, is this voice convinced me that who I had met that night was not the devil, but I had met God Almighty, the Creator of the whole universe. And I actually believed 100% that I'd met God, but He took pleasure in my torment. And every day I'd go to school and say, no one likes you, no one loves you, you should kill yourself. And in my mind, I would often ask this question. I'd say, well, hang on a second. If you're God and you control everything and you want me to kill myself, then why didn't I just die the night that I was on the acid trip? And as sharp as anything, that voice would say, because I hate you so much. I'm going to torment you here on earth and then I will take you and torment you for the whole of eternity. And from 16 to 19 years old, I never told one person what was going on. But there were so many nights that I'd cry myself to sleep in hopelessness because I believed I'd met God, but He took pleasure in my torment. At 19, it got to a point where it just became too much. I made a decision to end my life at 19. I worked out how I was going to take my life. I set a time and a date for when I was going to do it. I was just a week or two away from ending my life and I'm sitting at home during the day. And of all shows, I'm sitting there watching Oprah Winfrey. Oprah saved my life. It wasn't Dr. Phil. <laughs> and I'm watching Oprah and her guests on the show were people that had actually died physically for one minute, two minutes, three minutes. And they were there to talk about what they saw in those few moments of death. You know, they had flatlined in a hospital. And all of them said the same thing. They talked about a beautiful white light, a white tunnel that was full of peace. They went in, they came out. And I was sitting there getting annoyed because I was saying, well, I didn't see no white tunnel. Definitely didn't feel any peace. 
And I was only half watching the show. At the end of the show, a man, a professor, an American college professor, he puts up his hand and he says, Oprah, my story is very different. Can I share it? She says, you've got two minutes. He says, I was a staunch atheist, which means he believed 100% there was no God. He was traveling through Europe on a vacation and he had a perforation in his intestines. They exploded. He was rushed to a hospital and on the operating table, he died. He flatlined for about three or four minutes. He said to his shock that after he flatlined, his soul and his spirit left his body. He was actually hovering above the ceiling of the hospital room and he was watching them operate on his open stomach. He says, as he left his body, these beings came to meet him. And they started to take him away from where his body was. He said, the further we got away from my body, I started to realize that these beings weren't nice. They began to mock me. They began to tease me. They began to laugh at me. They began to beat me. And then he says something that blew my mind because I'd felt so alone for so long. On Oprah Winfrey daytime television, he said they turned into ferocious demon creatures and they began to rip his soul apart. And then he said something that helped me in such a positive way. He said, as I was just about no more, as I was ripping me apart, you gotta remember he's clinically dead. As I was just about no more, he said a little voice on the inside said, ask God for help. And an atheist professor, clinically dead, demons ripping his soul apart, he prayed his very first prayer. And he said, God, if you're real, can you help me out of this situation? And in that moment, he woke up on the operating table and on Oprah Winfrey, he gave glory to Jesus Christ who had rescued him from eternal separation from God. I'm just about done. In that moment, I realised that the reason I didn't die that night when I was on the acid trip was not the hopeless demonic answer that I'd been given. But that night I realised the reason I didn't die when I was 16 is because there was a God in heaven. His name was Jesus. He had a plan and a purpose for my life and He loved me dearly. See, but what I've now since learned, that truth, that incredible truth helped me so much. Stopped me from ending my life. But what I've begun to realise is part of it was a half-truth. I mean, it's fully true. That day I realised there, there is a real God in heaven and His name's Jesus and He's a loving God. But if my theology says the reason that I didn't die is because God loved me and had a plan for my life, if that's my theology, then you've got to ask the question, why do drug addicts die every single day without the love of God? Doesn't God love them? Doesn't God have a plan for them? Why do good people in retirement homes die every minute of every day without the love of God? Doesn't God love them? Doesn't God have a plan for them? The Bible says He does. Why do good mums and dads die every single day without the love of God? Doesn't God love them? The Bible says He does. And what I've become convinced of is the reason that I didn't die that night, the, the reason that I'm standing here in Temecula in the flesh many years later, the reason that I didn't become a little article in the local paper from that particular night that would have talked about another young 16-year-old boy lost in the battle of addiction. The only reason that today I'm not just a photo on my mother's mantelpiece. That would have been my prom photo in my ugly green suit and way too much gel in my hair. And 20 years later, people would have, 24 years later, people would have walked into my mum's house, they would have saw the old photo. And I said, who's the boy? 
with a tear in her eye. My mum would have talked about her boy that really was a good kid. But he got caught up in the wrong crowd and one night he took a drug and we never got to see him again. See, the only reason that I'm standing here in the flesh, the only reason I'm not that article, the only reason I'm not that photo is because I had one of the Lord's army that stood before heaven, that stood in between hell and my, and my destiny and continue to stand before God the Father and say, don't you go forget my nephew, Lucas Connell. He's going to be a giant killer. Hey, Father, I, I'm back again. Don't you go forget my nephew, Lucas Connell. He's going to be a giant killer. See, it's the only reason that I'm standing here today. See, remember I said my auntie did these few things and so does Jesus, sort of. My auntie came down to where I was at. So does Jesus. My auntie embarrassed me with generosity. So does Jesus. My auntie stood in the gap and prayed for my salvation. Jesus doesn't. The Bible says that Jesus intercedes for the saints. But He's banking on the fact that the saints would be so moved by the love He has for us that we would push apathy to the side, that we would not just be consumed by materialism, that we would stand in the gap, that we would occasionally turn off the television when nobody else is watching and stand before heaven and say, Father, I'm here on behalf of so-and-so. I'm here on behalf of my city, my street, my family. See, my question for you as we just about done is, who will you carry to the table? Who will you carry to the place of salvation? You know, there's a great scripture that says, how beautiful are the feet of those that bring good news. Which if you think about it, it's a really weird thing to say. Because let's be honest, no one has beautiful feet. Except the feet that brought the gospel into your world. How beautiful the feet of my auntie that walked into my life. We want to pray into that in just a moment, the people that you're believing for. But before I do that, I wonder if you're here today and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ. I want to pray for you in just a moment the prayer that I prayed 18 years ago. If you've never ever surrendered your life to Jesus, today's your day that you can say, you know what? I recognize what He did for me on the cross and today I want to give Him my life. Or, or maybe you're here today and you've done this before, but for whatever reason you found yourself away from God. If you were to get really real in your heart of hearts, you know that you're just not right with God. You know, the thing I love about people not being right with God is the furthest that you can ever be from God, the absolute furthest, is one sentence. One sentence of God, I'm sorry for where I've ended up. And He says, I've been waiting for you to say that. I want to pray for you right now with every eye closed, every head bowed. If you're in this place today and you're not right with God, but today you're drawing a line in the sand. I'm not going to get you out the front. But you're drawing a line in the sand. And you say, hey, Lucas, please include me in your prayer. I need to get right with God. In just a moment, with every eye closed, every head bowed, I'm going to count to three. And if you're in that group saying, Lucas, please include me. I need to get right. When I get to three, you'll lift your hand. I'll see it. You put it back down. And I'll include you in the prayer I'm about to pray. Every eye closed, every head bowed. One, friend, I tell you, He loves you more than you've ever dreamed or imagined. Two, it does not matter what you've done, where you've been, or who you are. You're God's precious son or precious daughter. Three, all over this place right now. Quick, lift your hand in heaven right now. Yeah, I'd love to pray for you, sir. So good. See your hand. Someone else just saying yes. Come on, is it? Yeah, I'd love to pray for you there as well, man. So good. So good. So proud of you. Well, yeah, I'd love to pray for you too. Good on you. Good on you for taking that step. So, so good. 
Come on, three people. Is there anyone else just saying yes? I don't want to miss you. If, you. if you're in this place and you know you're not right with God, come on, lift your hand. Say, include me today, Lucas. I'm not going home the same way that I came. I'm giving my life to Jesus one last time. Is there anyone else that would join these three awesome people? Fantastic. You can open your eyes. For those three people that lifted your hand, I want to pray a simple prayer. I'm going to get you to repeat it with me. But what we're going to do as a church family, we're all going to pray it because we're going to celebrate this awesome moment right now that you've drawn a line in the sand to live for Jesus Christ. So we're going to partner with you and pray. So let's all pray. But if you're one of the three, mean this with all your heart. Say, Dear Father, thank you for sending Jesus to die for my sins. Thank you that you forgive me for everything that I've done wrong. Today, I give you my life. Help me to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope that you were encouraged and uplifted by today's message. For more information about Passion Life Church, visit us online at passionlifechurch.com.